I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, and verse 26. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 26. And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. Our subject is only Christ can prevail. Now, the disciples with Christ have taken the last Passover supper, and that has been followed by the first, the inaugural Lord's Supper of the new church. And now, after they'd sung an hymn, or as the original says, more precisely, after they had hymned, because they probably sang three psalms, after they had psalmed, three psalms associated with the Passover, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And on the way, verse 27, Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. All ye shall be offended of me. The Greek word has a word which we have in the English language. All of you shall be scandalized. Meaning, in its original sense, literally, offended by me, ashamed of me. You will find me and consider me a shameful thing, an embarrassment. That's the meaning. This very night, all of you will find me shameful and you will flee, you will be scattered. You will be run. A great shock to the disciples. Immediately after that first communion, that first Lord's Supper, they're walking to the Mount of Olives. They're on their way. And this dramatic statement is made. But then a word of comfort, though they miss this entirely. It's in verse 28. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Why? That implies a lot. They're going to be scandalized or offended at him. There's going to be a betrayal, an unfaithfulness. But uh, still, they're going to be restored, evidently. They're going to recover. And they'll be with him and following him again but in a different sense. He will go before them, but they won't accompany him. They will travel to Galilee to see the risen Lord. And there'll be at least three parts or components to that uh, appearance of the risen Christ in Galilee and others, of course, in Jerusalem and elsewhere. But verse 29, Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, 
yet will not I. It's an amazing statement, and it gives us our first heading, the folly of self-confidence, the foolishness of self-confidence and self-reliance. Of course, it's a product of pride, but it's in all of us, unfortunately. We are created with many abilities and capacities, and we become used to doing all kinds of complex things. And life is crowded, particularly today, and full of technology. And we become adept at this and that, and we become confident in doing these things. And that self-confidence spreads through the whole of life. And we become tragically self-confident also with spiritual things and with the fight against sin and against Satan. And we trust to ourselves and our own capacity and strength. So this is for us. But here's Peter, you might say, at that time, seemingly the foremost disciple. And these words are astonishing. Although everyone else shall be offended, yet will not I. But in due course, very soon, all the disciples will be joining him in this kind of claim and affirmation. Yet will not I. To begin with, this is serious. He's flatly contradicting the Lord. He's a follower of the Lord. He believes him to be the Messiah. He is God as well as man. He's been startled at the number of times Christ has demonstrated that he knows all things. His word comes to pass. He is infallible. All of you will be offended at me and lose your faithfulness and dishonor me and run from me this very night. No, Lord. No, Lord. You're wrong, Lord. It's happened with Peter before, and he's been reproved. But now, head on, he clashes with the Lord, and he contradicts him. And why does he contradict him? Because the Lord has said something about his falling and failing. I I can't accept this, says Peter, yet not I, whoever else falls. Yet not I. It gets worse. And Jesus saith unto him, verse 30, Verily I say unto thee, that's a strong affirmation, most assuredly I solemnly declare to you, verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow thrice, Thou shalt, twice thou shalt deny me, thrice. Before dawn, you will three times deny me. Verse 31. Peter is unabashed. But he spake the more vehemently. He repeats himself. If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise, not in any way, in any form. I will not. 
I will be utterly faithful and loyal to the end, even if threatened with death, even in the process of execution. Nothing will shake me. What confidence. Self-confidence, self-reliance, the great undoing of us as believers, the undoing of the church. We'll look around us and we see many churches very, very confident in what they're doing and all the modern innovations and gimmicks, very confident in their, and the great word is giftedness, There's a gifted preacher here and a gifted preacher there and gifted instrumentalists and gifted soloists. Very confident in its giftedness. Prayer has become almost token and brief and incidental. So confident, as I said, in its innovations, drama and all kinds of things. Everything is coming into the church. Things borrowed from the world, outright worldliness, wall-to-wall music and all the rest of it, entertainment, so confident. There was a group of churches, large group of churches in this country, recently published a video in which they featured three of their churches that they thought would be an encouragement to others. Do it like this was the essential message. And what was it? All confidence and innovations and performance and entertainment and froth and shallowness. That's what self-reliance and self-confidence leads to. I remember in a fraternal Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones saying over 50 years ago, there can be no revival while there's all this confidence. And that's true. And you see it here, even with Peter and then the other disciples who took it up. If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Luke adds an interesting and vital word here that uh, this all took place and eventually the disciples would sleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then when Christ went to Calvary, nine of them would flee the sight and run and be clear of everything. Only Peter and John would follow so far to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, aware of the trial. But by the time Christ was bound and bundled off to condemnation by Pilate and to Calvary to there bear away the sin and the guilt of all who would be redeemed. By that time Peter would flee also and only John would be discreetly hidden at the foot of the cross. So the disciples would flee and show disloyalty and abandon him and be embarrassed at him. And Luke says, for sorrow. That was a great feature. They were so sorry. Sorry for him that he had to suffer. Sorry for Christ. No, sorry for themselves. 
because what they imagined would happen wasn't going to happen. That Christ would resist arrest and set up an earthly kingdom. It's an earthly kingdom they had their eye on. Earthly political deliverance and a place for them. They would be with him. They would be senior courtiers at his court and officers of state. And sorrow filled their hearts because they loved him. They believed in him. They understood he was Messiah. They understood he would take away the sins of the world. But they didn't fully understand it. They clung to their own ideas that it would be an earthly deliverance too. An earthly deliverance of the Jewish state. Sorrow filled their hearts. It was all coming to an end, they thought. They would soon learn. They would learn the truth. Their minds would be set free. They'd be overwhelmed. They'd be his servants to martyrdom, many of them. But at this point, self-confidence brought them down. If only, it's easy for us to say it, if only Peter had prayed and seen his weakness and his vulnerability. If only Peter, he saw it later at this early stage, had seen something of the size of the opposition and the battle, the devil and all the demons of darkness, the terrors that would take place, the crucifixion of the Lord, the glimpse they would then get of the nature of death and how profound and how terrible it is and judgment and punishment, all that had to be suffered and borne by Christ. If only they'd seen the opposition and realized how they could be undermined. Christ warned Peter. Luke tells us so. It says, Satan desires to have you and sift you as wheat. But Peter took no notice. He didn't hear that. It didn't drive him to his knees in prayer and sense of need. If it only had, then he'd have been strengthened. He'd have been seen through. But what self-confidence did, it brought him down. As we shall see in due course, first of all, those selected as one of the three who would witness and wait and watch with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when he had poured over him a foretaste of Calvary. Just a foretaste. And the disciples, the three honoured ones, were called to stand by him and to support him and to be present with him just at a little distance and to be there and witness it and uphold him, presumably in prayer, just as he was in prayer. And they failed. They slept Self-confidence led to them sleeping before nine of them totally abandoned him. And even Peter was to deny him. Peter, the most conspicuous disciple, the most forward disciple, became the most conspicuous in disloyalty in abandoning, in denying him.
Peter, the most certain, the most confident, fell the furthest of any of them. It's a lesson that's about self-confidence. Do I start off each waking day buoyantly going out to the car, to the bus, to the train, embark upon my day, hardly a prayer, sit in the office, in the workplace, enter into the lecture theatre, wherever, wherever we are, whatever trade, whatever we do, in the presence of other people, scarcely a prayer, unaware of the nature of the opposition, the fact that Satan desires to have us and sift us as weak and bring us down with some unworthy reaction, some testiness, some ill temper, some act of selfishness, some unhelpfulness, seal our lips, unaware of the ferocity of the spiritual warfare, no prayer, no feelingful, earnest cry for the help of God, self-confidence, self-reliance, then we shall fail and we shall be useless believers and useless servants unused by God. That's the lesson. It's not just history. How sad Peter fell. fell. It's more than that. Verse 31, he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. And then they arrive at the garden. It's a secluded place as it has an identity and a name. It's probably walled or fenced. It's at the foot of the Mount of Olives. It means the House of Olives. So there was either a building there among olive trees or maybe more likely it was a very rocky place at the foot of the mountain, a cave. And the cave or the building housed an olive press. And it would seem that it was owned one would assume, by a follower of Christ. It was a place to which Christ went repeatedly with the disciples for instruction of the disciples and for rest. And they came to the Mount of Olives after the solemn warning and Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, verse 32, Sit ye here, while I shall pray. Pray. This is the key word. What is Christ going to be doing during the foretaste of the sufferings of Calvary? He's going to be in prayer. How different from the disciples. Of course, he's the infallible Messiah. He's God as well as man. But he has to suffer in his human personality as well as in his Godhead to be our, truly our representative. Verse 33, he taketh with him Peter and James and John, a privileged three. They are going to be with him and to be supporters, a 
as it were. They won't fully understand it, but they'll be there. And began to be sore amazed and very heavy. Sore amazed. The Greek indicates and means this. Going to be overwhelmingly shocked and surprised. To use an old-fashioned word, but it's a good one. Overwhelmingly dumbfounded, taken aback, aghast in his humanhood, overwhelmed even by the foretaste of what awaited him on Calvary. It was terrible. It wasn't the suffering itself which would reach deeply into his soul the unseen sufferings of the soul of Christ on Calvary were infinitely greater, infinitely greater than the piercing of the nails through his hands and feet and the sores from his flogging, his scourging, till the blood ran and the crown of thorns and the hanging in the sun. The inner sufferings far, far outweighed the outer sufferings. And here is a glimpse, a sense of them, an awareness of them. And it was almost crushing even before the real thing. Gethsemane, a foretaste. What was it all about? Why was it necessary? Well, this is a bigger subject than we can take this morning. But to begin with, nobody in the history of the world would be able to say, when Christ died on Calvary, he couldn't have known what was coming. He was taken by complete surprise by Calvary. You say it was voluntary that he went. You say it was from his own free heart and spirit that he went to Calvary. But he didn't know the terrors of Calvary. Oh, yes, he did. He had the foretaste in Gethsemane. And it almost crushed him. And overcame him. So much so. That surely that human part. Of his being. Though we cannot really distinguish. Entirely between. His divine person. And his human personality. They were in a sense as one. And yet. It would seem that it was the human element that cried out mainly to the Father, if it be possible, some other way, Father, some other way. But he knew there was no other way. He had to go to Calvary out of love for his people who he would redeem. He had to suffer and die for them in an excruciating way to bear their eternal weight of punishment compressed into six hours. 
It had to be an atoning death, a substitutionary atoning death. Father, thy will, which really means our will, the will of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, in what we call the eternal counsel, that the Son would come and be incarnate and enter into human flesh and human personality and suffer and die. But you see the extent of it. Even the foretaste was so crippling and so horrific. Verse 34, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, shocked, taken aback unto death. Tarry ye here and watch their commission. Watch all they asked. Watch. And self-confidence will fail. And he went forward a little. And fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. The hour of foretaste and the hour of Calvary. It doesn't just mean that hour. This pivotal hour, the work of redemption. And he said, using the most personal and intimate terms, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. All things are possible. And it's evident that there was only one way to secure redemption. Through a sin-bearer a scapegoat, a saviour who would emancipate us by taking our penalty. Verse 37, He cometh and findeth them sleeping and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? It's a reproof. Couldst not thou watch one hour? whether that's precisely the time of Gethsemane and the foretaste, we cannot say. But they're recommissioned, verse 38, watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The Spirit truly is ready. Your intentions are good. You say you will never deny me. You'll never forsake me. But the flesh Human nature is weak. You and I, if you've found the Lord, we're saved. But we still have the old nature within us. I would recommend you not to follow those, and many of them are fine Christians and fine exegetes who have taken the more modern view that the old nature is no longer in the Christian. I do not believe that's the correct way to expound the scripture. But many good people hold to that. No, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Human nature, the old nature is still there. 
and it can reassert itself if we're not watchful. The new nature is superior and strong and wonderful. The new heart and the new nature given at conversion, but the old nature, residual sin, as the Puritans called it, is still within. The flesh is weak, never forget it. Don't you be overconfident, self-reliant, not in anything. It's the key to the Christian life. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, they were very tired. But nevertheless, they were given a wonderful privilege and a task. You can't actually do anything but just be there, near the Lord, and watch and pray. That's what that meant. As for Christ, during Gethsemane, Luke tells us, an angel from heaven came and strengthened him. Even Christ had in answer to prayer a direct empowering from heaven. An angel came and strengthened him. How could the disciples survive, even as witnesses, without prayer for strength from heaven? How can you and I go a single day without meaningly, sincerely, sincerely, feelingfully pleading for the help of God and the Holy Spirit and the Saviour? We need prayer. They didn't know what to say to him, it says. Verse 41, he cometh the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. The verse confuses us. Sleep on, get up. Well, we have to read into the verse a short interval of time. It wasn't long, but probably they had a, some opportunity to rest. Who knows? But the hour is come. Behold, see, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. There were the temple soldiers and the chief priests and Judas already in sight. Judas had led them there. Verse 42, rise up, let us go. Not let us run away, but let us go to them. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. But I close or move to conclusion with these thoughts, dear friends. Asleep. The disciples asleep. The three selected privileged ones who were so near to him, asleep, asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, asleep while the first great event of redemption, soon followed by Calvary, was being played out, while the most profound thing was happening, and the consequences of human sin in death were being rolled over the Saviour. 
asleep. And they missed it. What a tragedy. Self-confidence slipped through it. Self-confidence would lead to their disloyalty and their abandoning of him. And us. Not enough regard for the great warfare and the old nature within. Not enough prayer. Asleep while souls around us perish. Asleep while people in our place of work or study perish for whom we could have prayed, for whom to whom we should have witnessed and prayed for opportunity from God. Asleep while opportunities pass, great seasons of possible usefulness to God pass by. Asleep when the Spirit is at work, In the church, people are being converted. Hearts are being touched. People who were rebellious and hostile are melting and coming to Christ and desiring him. And yet, other people are asleep, barely noticing it. Not a word of praise to God. Asleep, like Peter, the most assertive one, asleep. Perhaps some friend here, outspoken, assertive, never at the prayer meeting, asleep, known for your views, and sometimes good views and guidance and thinking powers, absent from the place of prayer, asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, absent when Christ hung on Calvary. What a description of the consequences of self-confidence. They missed his triumphant last words on Calvary's cross. They heard everything he said except the triumphant final words of victory and the other sayings on the cross asleep for the embalming of the body asleep through great times what about us dear friends intentions good but nature old nature overwhelms us and takes us over well dear friends this is the garden of Gethsemane and I hope it's helpful to you but looking at this passage and looking at the, uh, what preceded it and the confidence of Peter, I thought that element of self-confidence and self-reliance seems to me to dominate both events. So I've passed by even the wonders of Gethsemane to some extent just to hold the theme of self-confidence and its terrible consequences, robbing Christian people who love the Lord of so much of their usefulness and their experience of divine things. The Lord, he surrenders himself entirely to the Father and to the divine purpose and plan
Thy will is everything. Or if only we would follow his example. He alone can help us. He surrenders himself, he yields himself, he obeys, and he has the victory in Gethsemane and then soon on Calvary's cross. Pray, dear friends, pray in every situation before you take the wheel of your car, before you reprove your children. Lord, give me wisdom, give me patience, give me love, give me balance, give me a right spirit, not out of ill temper, but out of positive character building. Lord, help me. Lord, help me in the presence of enemies, of hostile people. Lord, help me in the presence of suspicious eyes watching me. Help me to stand. Help me at home. Help me at business. Help me with the Sunday school class. Dare I do it unaided? Lord, be with me. May my, my very being commend thee to the children as well as the lesson. Help me in the pulpit. Pray, 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 dear friends. And you'll have an angel from heaven strengthening you and helping you.